contours that, that show its shape? What is the pattern of life that God wants us to lead? What expectations should we have in living the Christian life? Well, you could talk about it in theory, but often as we live our Christian lives, it's often helpful to have something concrete to look at, an example to imitate, a pattern to follow. But if we don't think about it carefully, we'll end up following just whoever is closest to us with the strongest personality. It will be shaped by the crowd or by the group or by the culture or by the magnetic church leader. And the life that we live may not be the authentic Christian life at all. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, he wanted them to be deliberate in choosing who they imitated. And one of those people was the Apostle himself. Uh, verse 17 of our passage, uh, he will say this to them. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. That is, he wants the Philippians to imitate his example and the example of those who follow his example. The example that he sets is going to be a pattern for godly uh, living, a pattern of gospel-centered, authentic Christian living. And let's think about that pattern because he's opened up for us, he, he opens it up for us in, in, in chapter 3 of Philippians. And we saw last week the first half of that chapter. Remember we saw how Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He wanted Jesus and what he had done for them to be their joy, to be their treasure, to be the thing that they celebrate above everything else. But we also saw they were false teachers who would rob them of that joy, who would add to the gospel of grace who wanted to make circumcision, not just faith in Jesus Christ, a requirement for salvation. They wanted the people to become Jews if they were going to become Christians. And we saw how Paul dealt with that matter. Very, very strong on it. It's Christ alone who saves. We place no confidence in the flesh in what we can do. And you remember how Paul gave himself as an example? He had been a first-class Jew circumcised, keeping all the Jewish laws, zealous for the religion. But all that was rubbish, dung, he said, compared to knowing Christ. And when it came to, be, to, 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 to being righteous, when it came to being right with God, when it came to be acceptable to God, God did not, Paul did not want God on the day of judgment to look at his works. He didn't want to be judged on the basis of keeping the law because he knew he was not good enough. And he would never be righteous before God on that basis. He wanted the righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of Jesus given up in sacrificial death. He wanted the righteousness that comes by faith in Him, by trusting in His death on His behalf. That is how he wanted God to see him on the day of judgment, united with Christ. And so the first thing about this authentic pattern of life is, is that it is, it is based firmly on justification by faith alone. That is, being declared right with God, being declared not guilty, being declared to be in, in good relationship with Him 
not by our goodness, but by God's kindness to us, received by faith. And Paul says, come by faith, trusting in Jesus alone to save us, not adding things to it like circumcision or religious ceremonies or requirements. So that was the pattern of Paul's life. That's what he, that's how he wanted to be. And that is what he wanted the Philippians to imitate. So the first thing about authentic gospel-centered living is it is built on the solid foundation of justification by grace through faith alone. That's all from the last week's passage. In the meantime, however, Paul wants us, Paul wants to know Christ better and better. He wants to partner him in his sufferings. To know the fellowship, that, that partnership from sharing with Jesus in the experience of pain and, and disappointment, of rejection and persecution. Uh, to be like Jesus in his death. His humble, loving, obedient, non-retaliatory, sacrificial death. So that at the end of verse 10. And whatever happens between now and then, he wants to share with Jesus in his resurrection. He wants to be raised on the last day, just like Jesus was, and be with Him in glory. And so as Paul experiences these things that Jesus experienced, then he will know Him better and better, and appreciate Him more and more. But Paul knows that he isn't there yet. He is realistic about his position. He knows Christ, but he doesn't know him fully. He's on the road, but he's not reached his destination. He's been changed, but he hasn't been perfected. And authentic Christian living involves pressing on towards perfection and glory. And we pick him up in verse 12. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. See, this, this doesn't mean he doesn't have assurance of salvation. He knows where he's going. Back, back in chapter 1, he already said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows when he dies, he's going to be with Christ, which is better by far. He's certain he's saved because it is Christ's righteousness, not his, that counts. But at the same time, he's not cocky. He doesn't pretend he's all okay already. He hasn't fully known that fellowship of Christ's suffering. He hasn't experienced the resurrection yet. He's still in the body. Hasn't been made perfect yet. He's still a sinner. Forgiven? Yes. Justified? Yes. Growing? Yes. Pressing on? Yes. Perfected? No. He's not there yet, and neither are we. And so the authentic pattern of Christian living takes into account the fact that we are still imperfect. Now, throughout church history, there have been groups of people who have thought they could be perfect in this life. Even John Wesley, one of the great ones, uh, taught a form of perfectionism. 
He said that by faith you can receive a so-called second blessing above and beyond the blessing of conversion and from that you'll be so filled with a love for God that you'll be perfect in your Christian life. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And I think if we're honest, we know that's not our experience either, is it? As a story about the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon was a speaker at a conference uh, and another speaker at the conference, another man who was preaching that, that Christians could reach this place of, of sinless perfection. And, you know, he suggested that, that, that there could be a point where you no longer struggle with sin, no longer have a desire to sin. You're perfected in the love of God. And the speaker went to humbly suggest that he'd realized this in his own life. And so the next morning at breakfast time, Spurgeon went behind the man and he poured a jug of milk over his head. And the man's response showed that what he said the previous day was not true. He still had his sinful nature. And if anyone tells you that they're perfect, <laughs> don't believe them, huh? Because we're not there yet. But the fact that they're not there yet should not make us give up on running the race. It's not a case of, well, I'm never going to be perfect in this life, so no man, no try la. Okay? No, no, no. The pattern that we are to imitate is one that is pressing forward towards perfection and glory. That's the, that's the direction we must be going in. And so in verse 12, Paul says, not that, I, not that I've already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We are to press on to know Christ better and better. We are to press on to fellowship in his sufferings. We are to press on to ultimately attain the resurrection from the dead. We are to strive towards that. Strive towards holiness of life. Work harder to be more godly. Make every effort to be more like Jesus in how we live. Let's not rest on our laurels. You can't say, ah, okay. We know Christ now, so no need to know Him better. You wouldn't say that about your friend, would you? You can't look back at the past and say, you know, last time we were so bad, we were like this, like this, like this. Now we're, we're so much better, so we're okay. We should never be satisfied with where we are spiritually, friends. Stagnation is out of the question for Christians. We all need to grow. We all need to push forward. We all need to push on to know God better, to love Him more, to grow in godliness and in Christ-likeness. But to never grow away from Christ, I must always be growing in Christ, knowing Him better, being more like Him. Like a runner in a race, we must push forward and press on. Now, the race we're running is not a race. We've got, to make, we've got to make sure we keep on making this very, very clear. The race we're running is not the race to make sure that we are worthy of being saved. Right? That is a race of works. This is not a race of works. It is a race that starts with Christ and what He has done for us. We're saved first and then only we start the race. It is a race for those who are saved. 
The reason Paul is pressing on at the end of verse 12 is because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Actually, the, the, the phrase is a little bit ambiguous in the original Greek. It could be translated this way, as the ESV is translated, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And if that's the case, then what it means is, Jesus saved Paul, he chose him, he died for him, he gave him his spirit, he made him belong to him, his own. And because Jesus did that for Paul, Paul now wants to live for Jesus. He wants to run the race to know Jesus better and better. He wants to serve him, he wants to take out his godly character, he wants to bear fruit for him, do good works for him, because Jesus has taken hold of him, made him his own. If you go home and read your NIV, then you'll see it translated this way. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, not just the motivation for salvation on view, but the purpose of it. Right? He presses on why? Because that is the reason that Christ Jesus has taken hold of him. To cause him to press on. That's also a good way of reading it. It's a perfectly valid translation. Both actually are valid translations. Jesus took hold of Paul for a reason. That he might know Christ more and more. That he might be godly and Christ-like and bear fruit and do good works. And so Paul's got to press on to take hold of it to fulfill the purpose of his salvation. Which one is he meaning? Actually, it could be either. But either way, there are other passages of Scripture that teach the same thing, so either way we're on safe ground. Eh? But either way, what Paul is saying is that Jesus took hold of him first. And because of that, he is striving towards godliness. He's not running in order to be saved, but because he has been. Christian living is built on the solid foundation of justification by grace through faith alone and then it involves pressing on to perfection and glory but as you think about this pressing on you can see that it's not just a not just a passive thing is it right? by definition pressing on is an active thing you don't run a marathon by sitting in the passenger seat of the car alright you go sweat it out don't expect the Christian life to be a cruise from one mountaintop victory to another. Don't expect just to live passively above your problems. Don't expect to be able to sit there and ignore the race and just be carried along. That is not the pattern that's set before us. It's active. It's hard work. It involves discipline. And Paul says he strives to do it. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the, upward, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't look to what is behind. He doesn't look to all those gains that he made in Judaism in the first half of chapter 3 that he considers rubbish now for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't even look towards his achievements that he's already made in his Christian walk. He's not like the runner who in the middle of the race stops and goes, oh, actually, I've come quite a long way already. Run enough for today. Oh, come pretty far. No. He forgets what is behind 
and strains on to what is ahead. His vision is not on the past, but on the future. He keeps his eyes on the finishing line, presses towards the winning the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In the ancient Olympics, the runner who won the race would be given a wreath of leaves. That was their prize. And when they won, they would be called up to the box to receive their prize from the emperor or, or one of his officials. It's like the World Cup final, huh? It happened recently. When Spain defeated Netherlands, what happens? The captain get called up to receive the cup, presumably from Nelson Mandela or whoever it was. Who was it? Nelson Mandela, was it? Nelson Mandela, okay. And Paul says he wants to press on to the finishing line, to keep on running, to keep on knowing Jesus better and better, keep on striving to the very end so that when he reaches the finishing line, God will call him up to receive his prize, his commendation, his well done in Christ Jesus. And friends, if you and I belong to Jesus, then, then we have been saved. By faith in His death and resurrection, we have been forgiven. We will appear before Him on the last day, not based on our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we are to make every effort to run that race. To keep on pressing forward. To pursue holiness. To grow in our service for Christ. To grow in our character of Christ grow in our knowledge of Christ head, heart, hands keep on pressing forward that is the pattern of Paul's Christian life that is the pattern of our Christian life that is the example that you and I are to set and that is the example that you and I are to follow I wonder if I asked you to compare yourself now and where you were, say, two years ago, have you grown? Have you gone forward? Have you grown head? Grown in your knowledge of God? Understanding of His Word? Have you grown in heart? Your character? Becoming more like Jesus, the way you deal with suffering and pain, in serving Him, in your priorities, in your holiness, growing in your hands, in the service of Him, how you promote His gospel in different ways, serve His people. Are you growing? Are you stagnating in your Christian walk? You know, sometimes after we've been Christians for a few years, we can, we can tend to coast a bit, can't we? Growth that we experience when we're new Christians kind of slows down and we plateau out. In fact, it's a bit like that everywhere. You, know? you have small companies that grow very quickly and then when we become big companies, very hard to sustain uh, the same kind of growth. Uh, mature economies tend to grow more slowly than emerging ones. Of course, there are exceptions, but that's just a general trend. Maybe there are some people in Philippi who had been Christians for a while and 
might have been fairly mature as Christians, all the basics under their belts, and just coasting along nicely. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Can't be like that. We don't want to be like that in smack. Mature Christians should not coast. You should be seeking to grow like everyone else. And if you haven't thought about this way before, then friends, think about it. If you think you've arrived, if you think you don't need to grow, then think again. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. If you think you're a mature Christian, God wants you to know that you have to keep on growing. And if you don't think you will, if you think you don't, then watch out because God will reveal it to you. He may reveal it to you as you sit here and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul. Or he may force things to happen in your life to force you to actually listen carefully to what he's saying in his word and you realize he's right. I think I'd rather learn the easy way than the hard way, huh? I'd listen to God's word the first time and be shown my shortcomings than to become even more painful aware, painfully aware of how far I have to go and then be forced to acknowledge that he is right. And either way, God will teach us a lesson and ensure that we, need to, that we know that we need to keep on growing. We're not there yet. Not even the Apostle Paul was there. And if we think that we've made it, then God will surely humble us. Take to heart this morning. And whatever happens, the most important thing is what's in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? It's eternal life through the gospel. Righteousness of God in Christ. That is the most important thing. That is, in the end, that is what is going to motivate us to grow. That is what is going to be the engine force for our growing. Forgetting what is behind doesn't mean forgetting the gospel. You've got to hold on to that. Run forward in the race. Let's hold fast to Christ. So brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul was both certain of his salvation and unpresumptuous in his straining to run forward in the race. And the pattern that he sets, and other Christians like him set as well, is the pattern, the blueprint for the Philippians, and the pattern, the blueprint, the Holy Spirit sets before us as we seek to live authentic Christian lives in this world. Trust in Jesus fully for salvation and strive to know Him better and live for Him in the midst of suffering in this world and look forward to entering into glory. And so he says in verse 17, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Friends, having this model set before us is very, very important. 
It was important for the Philippians because there were other models around at the time. And like it or not, there are still other models around. Other patterns of supposedly Christian living that are on offer. There's the prosperity model. Salvation is from problems. Financial problems, or relationship problems, or whatever problems. The answer is material blessings or breakthroughs. And Christian growth is becoming more and more adept at naming and claiming them in the spiritual realm. And there's the moralistic model. Salvation is by keeping the rules. Christian growth is keeping the rules better and better. Keep the rules as best as you can and hope God thinks you're okay. And then there's the free and easy model. God loves you and just wants you to be happy. So whatever you do that makes you happy, just do it as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. If we follow these models, these patterns, we will end up in trouble, won't we? There are people around who do this. They may profess to be Christians, they may be church leaders, they may, but this is not the authentic Christian life. They may look like Christians, they may talk like Christians, they may even smell like Christians, if you know what a Christian smells like. But they don't follow the pattern that comes from Jesus Christ. They are not people of the cross. And so they are examples to avoid. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I think there are two ways you can be enemy of the cross. Enemies of the cross don't rely on the cross, don't rely on the death of Jesus for salvation. The cross is not enough. We add other things to it. Or, they downplay the cost. Concentrate on something else instead. So concentrate on some other so-called gospel. And they live as enemies of the cross. But the other way to be an enemy of the cross is to refuse the life of the cross. Enemies of the cross will refuse to suffer for Christ. The Christian life is cross-shaped must be willing to suffer as Christ did. We know Christ better as we suffer for Him. But some people will not accept the place of the cross in the Christian life. They want it to be all about the victory, the triumph, the glory. They want Easter Sunday without Good Friday. They want the new creation now. And all the blessings of heaven, of health and prosperity and trouble-free living right now rather than bearing the cross and waiting for the resurrection. Forget the cross and try and move straight in. And friends, there's no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. No resurrection to glory without the pain of the cross. Enemies of the cross are not heading in the same way as Jesus did. they running a different race, a different goal. The end, verse 19, is destruction. No wonder Paul is in tears when he describes them. Because you see, the God they serve, the ultimate idol is, is themselves. 
They are preoccupied with what they can get, how they can be satisfied. They practice a self-centered religion that is not about the glory of God. It's about satisfying my needs. It's not about God and who He is and what He's done. They don't glory in God. They don't boast in Him. They don't rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's about what they can get from Him. And God is not the Almighty One they love and they serve. He's a means to an end. A slot machine. And the end is their own prosperity or satisfaction or pleasure or position or whatever. And Paul says their real God, verse 19, is their belly. Furthermore, in verse 19, he says that they glory in their shame. They boast about things they really ought to be embarrassed about. The immoral in their practices and quite open about it because they're so depraved, they're actually proud of their sexual sin. Think it's okay, happy to parade it around. God is their belly, the glory is their shame, and their minds, verse 19, set on earthly things. Whole orientation is worldly. It's not about God. 